I will keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is Mega Bluster. I'm Stefan, and this is part nine of our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. This time around, Mega Man 5, released in Japan as Rockman Go, Burusu no Wana, which translates to Rockman 5, Blues Trap? In December 1992 for the Nintendo Family Computer, and in the United States in December 1991 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. W.S. Van Dyke is an interesting character in the evolution of popular Hollywood films of the 1930s. A native Californian, Van Dyke worked as an assistant director on D.W. Griffith's infamous and infamously successful 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation, which meant he was present at the moment cinema transformed from curiosity to cultural force. As a director himself, he shepherded several productions to runaway box office success and cultural importance, including 1932's Tarzan the Ape Man, which made a star of Johnny Weissmuller, 1935's Naughty Marietta, which popularized the song Sweet Mystery of Life, most famously sung by Madeleine Kahn and then Terry Garr at the site of the monster's Schwanstucker in Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, and 1936's San Francisco, which earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Director. Van Dyke's most lasting contribution to cinema, though, may have been 1934's The Thin Man, a seminal comedy mystery starring William Powell and Myrna Loy as the archetypical married detectives Nick and Nora Charles. Although based on a standalone novel by Maltese Falcon author Dashiell Hammett, The Thin Man proved so popular that it spawned a franchise. Van Dyke himself directed three more films in the series, 1936's After the Thin Man, 1939's Another Thin Man, and 1941's Shadow of the Thin Man. All three were hits. And then the series ran into two problems. The first was World War II, and the second was the death of W.S. Van Dyke. In 1945, The Thin Man Goes Home was released in theaters. It proved commercially successful and welcomed Myrna Loy back to the screen after several years serving in the Red Cross. But despite its success, there was a distinct sense that the film was made not as an artistic statement or a passion project, but rather as a sort of cinematic comfort food designed to provide everyone involved and watching with a sense of normalcy after some tumultuous years. In the director's chair was Richard Thorpe, an MGM veteran probably most famous at this point for having been fired from The Wizard of Oz two weeks into production. Thorpe was a steady hand at the tiller, and the job he was given was simple. 
Give the people what they want and don't mess around. At a certain point, every major media franchise reaches that critical fork in the road. You can either do what the audience expects of you, or you can try something new at the risk of destroying the audience's goodwill. And because most established businesses become more risk-averse over time, and most cinematic budgets during this period were getting smaller rather than larger as series rolled on, giving the audience what they want is the default position most producers will take. Now, despite, or perhaps because of his long, varied, and successful career, Tokoro Fujiwara was most producers by 1992. Between July 1991 and January 1993, Capcom released six official Rockman games. Three for the Famicom and three for the Game Boy. Of the six, Mega Man 5 is likely the one most fondly remembered. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to the decision to simply give audiences more of what they thought they wanted. While many personnel carried over from Mega Man 4, there was a new director at the helm. And when I say new, I mean new. According to Moby Games, Mega Man 5 was the first game that Ichiro Mihara ever worked on. Now that's not likely true, given the spotty nature of record-keeping around game production at this time, but the man was clearly early on in what would turn out to be a long career. Most recently, he was credited as the producer of Tetris 99, Nintendo's competitive online take on Tetris for the Nintendo Switch. But in the early 1990s, he was just another young director, trying not to rock the boat. In fact, Don't Rock the Boat seemed to be the guiding ethos of the Mega Man series by this point. That said, Mega Man 5 does seem committed to lowering the barrier to entry for newcomers, presenting what feels from start to finish like a significantly easier experience. Naturally, Keiji Inafune has retrospectively taken credit for this softening of the series' now infamous difficulty level, stating in the Mega Man Complete Works collection, that he did not want to make an unreasonable game. I wouldn't call Mega Man 5 an unreasonable game by any stretch, but it's also hard to call it an inspired one. Here for the first time as I played, I felt the unusual structure of a Mega Man game really come to the fore. As we've discussed previously, Mega Man games are structured with an unconventional difficulty because of the game's level select mechanic, any one robot master might draw the attention of the player and prompt them to begin the game with their stage. In Mega Man 5, those robot masters are Starman, Gravity Man, Gyro Man, Stone Man, Crystal Man, Charge Man, Wave Man, and Napalm Man. The fact that a player might choose any of these Robot Master's stages to start with forces the designers to set the difficulty of those first eight stages at a roughly equal level before beginning to ramp it up when Mega Man reaches the lair of the Big Bad. 
In this case, the big bad is a robot impersonating Blues, who is known in the West as Proto Man. And this robot is swiftly dispatched by the real Proto Man in a cutscene that gives the game its biggest who saw that cup who saw where that came from moment. Having a standard difficulty level for robot master stages has been par for this series since the beginning. But this is the first time I've noticed not just standardized difficulty in stages, but a standardized structure as well. It's possible my brain is playing tricks on me, but Mega Man 5 calls to me more than once to ask, haven't I seen this before? In playing, I observed that Mega Man 5's eight Robot Master stages break down into three basic patterns. Crystal Man, Napalm Man, Gravity Man, and Star Man all feature stages with strong similarities in their layouts. Wave Man does not differ significantly from those four, although it is broken up in the middle by a sort of elementary school take on the Battletoads speeder bike course. Gyroman and Stone Man adhere to a different model where the world is basically a climb from bottom to top. While Charge Man puts the player onto the back of a speeding train and represents a straightforward left-to-right progression. I couldn't tell you if every Mega Man stage to date has broken down into these similar patterns. It wouldn't shock me if they did. What's interesting to me, though, is this is the first time I'd ever noticed it, and I think it's worth asking why. I don't think that the stage theming is any less distinct in Mega Man 5 than in any of its predecessors. In fact, multiple stages do a great job distinguishing themselves with unique gimmicks. In addition to the aforementioned speeder bike chase, there is also a great gravity-flipping mechanic in Gravity Man's stage that readily calls to mind 1991's Metal Storm, a fantastic run-and-gun platformer released by Irem that we alluded to briefly in our Kokoron episode. Gyroman's stage features Mega Man's take on the classic Super Mario Bros. 3 donut lifts, and the introduction to Starman's stage recalls a similar Starfield area of Kokoro. The game certainly seems more technically advanced than its predecessors, preventing several areas where Mega Man rotates and is seen from different angles. Elementary effects, to be sure, but indicative of a thoughtful polish that should distinguish the game from its predecessors. And yet the series has rarely seemed so familiar as in Mega Man 5. There's a sense of running in place here that's even more egregious than it had been in Mega Man 4. Then the series had reflected Capcom's internal hesitance to move to new hardware. Something competitive studios did not exhibit, but which was contextually understandable. Here, though, the only explanation that makes sense for running in place is that moving Mega Man forward simply wasn't a priority for Capcom. Not when Street Fighter 2 was smashing records in arcades across the world. The Super Famicom port of Street Fighter 2 had been released in Japan on June 10, 1992, right in the middle of this run of low-budget, cash-grab Mega Man games. The brand, as it were, was in maintenance mode, while the parent company chased the new hotness. So is there any reason to recommend Mega Man 5 in this context? Well, of course, and it's the same reason we can somewhat confidently recommend The Thin Man Goes Home after you've watched the first four Thin Man films. 
It's a well-put-together game that both recalls and builds upon the fond memories you've had of the previous games in the series. There's nothing wrong with Mega Man 5 as a standalone piece of work or as a sequel to a successful franchise. In fact, the only negative thing you can really say about it is that it's treading on familiar ground. And that brings us back to that fork in the road. What would Mega Man 5 look like if its makers had been willing to take some more risks? Or if they had been better resourced to do so? Would there even have been a Mega Man 5 on the NES if Street Fighter 2 hadn't been such an incredible hit and sucked the oxygen out of the proverbial room? Or would Capcom have had the resources and the imperative to do with Mega Man what Konami was already doing with Castlevania? By 1992, Konami had already made the leap to the Super Famicom, and by the time Capcom finally got its act together with Mega Man X, Konami had already released both Castlevania Chronicles for the Sharp X68000 and Akumaju Dracula X Chino Rondo for the PC Engine Super CD-ROM-ROM. Man, NEC could name a console. Konami had taken three bites at the apple before Capcom even took one, and it's hard not to wonder what might have been if Capcom had been forced to push forward and take risks with the property instead of retreading familiar ground. Of course, it's also worth looking forward at what Capcom would do with its 1990s flagship brand, Street Fighter II. And that is the same thing over and over and over again with subtle variation and a whole bunch of other games in the same style, but with different branding and slightly different systems, over and over again, with subtle variation. When push comes to shove, most successful brands are ultimately going to come down on the side of giving the people what they think they want. Long-term consequences be damned. Thanks for listening to Part 9 of Mega Buster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Music for this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original compositions in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you did not enjoy this episode, send it to someone that you don't like and punish them for their badness. If you have any feedback that you'd like to provide, or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at guilessgamer.com. This and other social links are also in the show notes. How long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the ex-buster on my hand knows for sure.